the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Of preachers, Spurgeon used to say, if you walk into the pulpit humbled, you'll go out exalted. However, if you walk in exalted, full of yourself, you'll walk away humbled. Today, on Way of Grace, we see this in Job's life. Join us. Abounding Grace is next. The Ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, this is Abounding Grace. Welcome to the program. We're in Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 9 today. It's a message called Job is Exalted. And indeed, when you find yourself humbled before God, that is precisely how God rewards that humility, that desire to repent and seek His favor. He rewards us with exaltation. And we'll see how in the life of Job today and tomorrow. Join us. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Job is exalted. There are wonderful, compelling reversals in the three verses I want us to focus on today as we move toward the conclusion of Job, and that is verses 7 through 9. Job's accusers become the accused now. As terrible as Job still looked, nothing has changed in his outward appearance yet. He is appointed to be the mediator between God and his three friends. Those who seem to have won the debate are condemned for speaking wrongly about the Lord, while the Lord vindicates Job. The Lord has treated Job roughly, and yet Job is the one who is accepted. In many respects, these verses confirm what it says in Psalm 75, 7, and that is that God is the judge, and he putteth down one, and he setteth up another. Or as Zechariah said in Luke chapter 1, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sends away empty. So God is the God of reversals. Things are not always what they seem to our way of thinking. And we are never to judge the saints of God by their outward appearance or condition. Because this varies so much over time. In fact, God often treats his children way more roughly than he does the children of the world. But in the end, he intends to spare us. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.32? That we are judged now so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So we are taught a very important lesson from these verses as we will see it unfolded. And that is 
The Lord will correct our faults as he corrected Job. And in the process, he will bring Job very low as he did in chapter 42, 1 through 6. But if we humble ourselves under his hand, he will exalt us in due time. So the Lord, verse 7, is angry with Job's three friends. In fact, the language is pretty strong. My wrath is kindled against them. The Lord has rebuked Job. We have seen that in the past chapters. And he's done it for his hasty words and his bitter spirit. And God's purpose in confronting Job has been to humble his servant and then to restore him. It is remarkable that never once does the Lord express any anger toward Job. And yet he is extremely angry with Job's three friends. I wonder if as Job's three friends listened to God's questioning of Job, they were thinking, oh, yeah, 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 vindication is coming. And yet they were deceived. God was angry with them. And I don't think we are to take from this that they were not God's true children because the Lord immediately shows them the way that they can be restored to His fellowship. But at the same time, He said, You have spoken wrongly about Me, and you have judged My servant harshly. We need to be careful, don't we? How we speak about one another and about God's servants and about God Himself. God doesn't like it when His people are are unjustly accused. And that's what Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad had been doing. They falsely accused Job of many, many grievous sins. And it certainly looked to be the case. I mean, if we had been there, we would have thought, man, yeah, God must be really judging Job. So Job must have done something really, really terrible. But when those who profess to know the Lord and have a good track record in the presence of many witnesses of serving the Lord faithfully, we need to be very careful of what we say about them, how we judge them based upon maybe a simple change of their circumstances or possibly because the Lord strikes them with affliction. Now, the Lord dealt first with Job in chapters 38 through 41. Why is this? 1 Peter 4.17 says, Judgment always begins at the house of God. Uh, Again, not that Job's three friends were separated from God's flock, but I do think not being as wise or as godly or perhaps as near to God's heart as Job was, God then dealt with Job first. So it might seem, well, God's going to really deal firmly with them then. You see, that's what we often think. Lord, the world is just so bad, I I know you're going to let them have it, right? But we ignore something very, very important. And that is that that order is usually reversed in history. 
In other words, God gives his enemies the good things in this life. Do you remember Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man is in hell. And he looks up and he begs for a drop of water from, from Abraham. And Abraham says, or, or from Lazarus, and Abraham says, Son, you had your good things in this life. And Lazarus had evil things. So we need to remember this. That God often afflicts his children so they look like anything but the favorites of heaven. Here's Job. He's the one who obviously is favored. And yet he is the one in whom God has been afflicting terribly. So when we see God afflicting his children, when he afflicts us, or we see the wicked prosper, we need to remember that our life, our true glorious Christians, is hidden with Christ in God. It is not yet appearing in this life that what we shall be, so we mustn't despair when God takes us to task for our faults. We are, we are His children. Are you not harder on your own children? You should be than the children of your friends. And of course you are because they are your children. And we see this in Job and even in his three friends. God is much harder on Job. And Job was the one who spoke rightly. And that's from God's own mouth. His three friends were the ones who spoke what was not right about God. And yet God treated Job more roughly than he did them. So we need to be really, really careful when we look at a Christian and we say, man, that brother, that sister must be really evil. They must have really fallen into sin because such and such has happened to them. We can't make judgments based on our eyes, beloved. We are commanded to make righteous judgments. And we need to remember this. Eliphaz and the other two friends did not remember this. You must remember that when we have to confront and we have to deal with those who are sorrowing, we are dealing with the friends of God. We are dealing with His servants. It's amazing. When there's a conflict in the church, suddenly those who are going to be together in heaven one day, the temptation is great to start looking at one another and say, well, you don't agree with me, so you're obviously of the brood of Satan. And so you are not the friend of God. We've got to remember that just men fall seven times. And yet God is able to raise them back up. And when we think about how we treat one another in the body, think of one another in the body, we always need to remember that we are handling, that we are dealing with the bride of Christ. So we need to do so, unlike Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who treated Job despicably.
And God was angry with them. We need to forgive one another. We need to uphold one another. If one member suffers, all members suffer with them. And instead of saying, yeah, I knew that brother was going to get this. I knew that was going to happen to him. Instead, our hearts should be broken. And we should do everything we can to encourage that brother or sister. Now continuing in verse 7. I think we can obviously see that the Lord decides the debate. He makes it very clear. Job's three friends, he says to Aliphaz directly, You have spoken of me something that is not right, unlike my servant Job has. This is stated twice. It is stated again verbatim in verse 8. And it's a strange thing, isn't it? For the Lord to be angry about theological mistakes just because they didn't speak rightly about what? They didn't speak rightly about God's providence, God's dealings with man in the world. Job has spoken correctly about these things. That's not how we normally think about how important our theology is, that when we speak for God and we handle His Word, we need to be very, very careful. Jesus says, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And Job's three friends have been speaking wrongly about God. This is somewhat startling to our modern way of thinking, that God would condemn them for misunderstanding providence. What was their main argument? Do you remember? God always blesses the righteous, and you can always tell a wicked man because God always judges him. That was their argument in a nutshell. In other words, they got how God deals with men in history, but providence, they got it all wrong. Many today laugh at theological errors. Oh, come on, give me a break. Don't talk about doctrine. Don't talk about theology. But you know, there are no worse errors, no worse sins than theological ones. All of the modern sins, all of the modern errors, the statism that we see in our land are rooted theologically misspeaking about God, misunderstanding Him. And the Lord says, in effect, because you have misspoken about me, I am angry with you. You've drawn the conclusion that because Job's circumstances have been so changed, he, he must be a hypocrite. And speaking against him, you've been speaking against me. He says about Job, on the other hand, he has spoken rightly. The word right here connotes firmly established, fixed, settled, and directed aright. Job understood that God doesn't always bless His people outwardly and with abundance in this life. Nor does He always or even usually judge the wicked. Sometimes the wicked are very prosperous. And it is the righteous who 
suffer. So Job said, we must leave the final determination to the day of judgment. Now it's true, Job made many rash statements. The afflictions, the way his friends were provoking him, just led him past the bounds of reason. But in the main, he spoke the truth about God. Isn't this interesting? The Lord has just taken Job to the woodshed in one respect, revealing his glory to him. But he says, Job has spoken right. It's almost as if the Lord says, I know there are many faults in Job, but he is my man. He's my prophet. I know he spoke rashly and he wanted to debate with me and he was defending his own integrity, but I accept him. I I love him. The book of Job teaches us, and this is major theme here, beloved. The book of Job teaches us that his love abounds toward his children even when we fall far short. And there is a great encouragement here to us. Even though there are many faults in all of us. I think in, in everybody in here would have to say, yeah, if you just only knew. And I would have to say the same. But we always need to remember... God accepts us, not because we are good, but because Jesus is good. He accepts us, in other words, for the sake of His Son. Paul felt his wretchedness, and he said in Romans 7.24, much of what Job said in chapter 42.6, I hate myself. I am a wretched man, yet he was a faithful servant of the Lord. You see, once God accepts us through the blood and the righteousness of his Son, and he adopts us into his family, he accepts our works even when they are stained with many failures and weaknesses, just like Job. God says, Job has spoken right. But hasn't God already condemned Job at one level early on? Didn't he say, who is this who darkens counsel? You see, the Lord didn't look at this episode in Job's life and say, yeah, that is what defines Job. He looked at Job and he said, I've made friends with Job. And by my grace, I have redeemed him. Job loves me. Yes, he has many stains. But Job is the one who has spoken right. Let's take this even more deeply. Four times in these verses, the Lord calls Job, my servant, my servant. Now, isn't this odd? Here's Job. He's the one who is still at some level lying on the ground with boils, sackcloth and ashes, dead children, lost wealth and all of these things. And yet the Lord says, he's my servant. Now Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they weren't afflicted, right? They didn't have any boils. They hadn't lost everything. 
And I'm sure they're sitting there looking all nice and clean. But the Lord doesn't call them his servants. Job has lost everything. His faith is probably terribly shaken. And his friends thought him to be cursed, but God calls him my servant. He doesn't call his friends his servant. See, it's not our outward appearance or circumstances. It's not who we are that gains the favor with God. It is His grace in our lives. We are not His servants because we believe when everything is just great and dandy. Anyone can do that. But we are His servants because when everything is going horribly, we hold fast to His promises. So we should never think, well, you know, I've sinned. So I I can't possibly be God's servant. Really? Job sinned? And yet he was God's servant? Because God had accepted Job by his grace and by his mercy. And you know, many of God's most illustrious servants have been outwardly despised and suffered so many deprivations and hardships that the world thought them to be cursed. Who would have thought that Elijah was a man of God? He he was very much like John the Baptist. He, he, He lived in the desert. Ravens had to bring him meat every morning. He seemed to be wretched in the eyes of the world. But remember, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw The glory of the Lord. So, see, part of the background here, the substratum of this is, the three friends of Job have been judging by what they saw with their eyes. God says, you've been making unrighteous judgment. You've been speaking wickedly against my servant. What about our Lord Jesus? I mean, did he look like the servant of the Lord when he had nowhere to lay his head? When, he, when they took up rocks to stone him in his own village of Nazareth, and especially when he was struck down on the cross, he was despised and rejected of men, but he was nonetheless God's beloved son and faithful servant. So I think one of the things this book does is challenge us, wait a minute, Can you always tell God's servants by how prosperous they are? No, this is a lie of the modern church. They say, here are these principles for being wealthy and making your family squeaky clean so that you look like a picture postcard. Here are things you can do to make everything in your life fit the American dream when the problem is the American dream is an American delusion. And God oftentimes treats, usually treats his children more firmly, more harshly. He whoops us every now and then. And when we need need it, he corrects our faults. Not always. He gives joy too and he heals us. He deals us as with it he deals with us as a wise father. And yet What do the varying ways He treats us teach us? It teaches us that we cannot walk by sight or assumptions. 
We must always walk by faith in God's promises. But try to take this in. Each one of us here has many stains. Your stains may not be my stains. Maybe we do have the same stains. We are all weak. Your weaknesses may not be mine, but you see, once we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and we are in covenant with Him, God looks at us and He says, You are my friends and you are my servants. Yeah, but what about my sins? He says, You are my servant. I have forgiven your sins through my Son. You are my servant, and I do not define you, God says, by your faults or by your weaknesses or by your family failures. I define you by the righteousness of my Son. You have a different head now, the Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, this should encourage us to pursue holiness and to be joyful for all things. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402-1484, Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Amen.